John chapter 4 on page 1023 of that copy of the scripture. 1 John chapter 4, and the focus of our attention this morning is on verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, we are in the middle of a sermon series we're calling Behold Your God, Discovering Who God Is and What He's Like. And one thing that I've said throughout this course of the series is that it's a very countercultural message that we could actually know God for who He is. We live in a culture, and you rub shoulders with people, and maybe you are like this yourself, that think that if God exists, He can't really be known for who He is. After all, doesn't being dogmatic about God's nature, doesn't that lead to fights and disagreements of feeling a superiority, and isn't that the cause of a lot of problems, being dogmatic. We, it's better to say, many people would, would put it this way, it's better to say that God is unknowable. Well, what I've tried to demonstrate to you over the course of the series is that thinking is flawed because it makes a dogmatic statement about God that he is unknowable. It's far better to take the approach uh, of the, and say this, if God exists and he does, surely he can make himself, himself known to us and he does. And God has made himself known to us through this book, the Bible. Instead of just pulling out ideas of God out of our own imagination, we go to the Bible to discover who God is and what he's like. And as we've done this, we've seen that God is holy. We've looked at the fact that God, the, the one God, exists eternally in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We've seen that God is wise, God is good. And last Sunday, we explored the fact that God is love. And because in 1 John particularly, so many statements about God's love are welded into statements about our love for one another, I thought that it would not do justice to this teaching on God's love if we, if we gave attention to the first and not the second. That is, if we gave attention only to God's love for us and not gave attention to our love for one another because the two are linked together. You can't have one without the other. So whereas last week we focused on God's love for us, this week... I want us to focus on our love for others, our love for others. Beloved, John writes, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Can I ask you to carefully consider this question this morning and honestly from the, from the depths of your heart? Do you love others? Where would you rank yourself on the scale of love? For one another. And while I'm sure that no one in this room would be so proud to rank themselves as a 10 on a scale from 1 to 10, maybe you'd consider a second question. That is, why isn't your love for others greater than it is? Why isn't it any greater? I think the biggest problem facing us when we deal with this topic of our love for one another is the same problem we face when dealing with God's love for us, and that is that we hear so much about love that we think we know what it means. We think we know and understand what love means because our pop musicians croon about love. Uh, movies use love as the momentum of their the storyline to glue our eyes to the screen and to melt our hearts. And we all agree that love is so important. I've heard it said, and I mentioned this last week, that some people will say, if I can't be with that person in a loving relationship with that person, I don't think I want to live. I'd rather die. 
And I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think that's a true, the truest statement a person can make because it, it says something about the human condition, and that is, apart from love, life seems worthless. And so, yeah, love is very, very important, but the idea that can creep into our minds is this, well, it's so important, it must be natural. And to a degree, that's true. I mean, what new mother doesn't feel this explosion of love when she sees her firstborn baby for the first time? And what couple saying their vows at the marriage altar doesn't, don't, doesn't feel like they're just above the clouds in love with one another? And what friend doesn't feel that warmth and comfort in the presence of another friend that they can just confide in? But we know what happens. Given a few years, decades, maybe even months or weeks, love can grow cold. It runs out of fuel. It crashes into the ditch. And pretty soon that little son that gave the mother so much joy becomes the greatest heartache in her life. The couple that vowed their undying love to one another look at each other now and think, why do we ever get married? And the friend that once was a source of comfort and encouragement speaks harsh words that leave wounds that will not heal. You see, we have to admit that while we believe that, and rightly so, that love is important and to a degree natural, there's something wrong, there's something that goes wrong in our love with one another. How would you rate your love and why isn't, isn't it greater than it is? There's a statement I've quoted before from the Russian novel, The Brothers Karamazov, and it goes something like this. I found that the more I love, two characters are talking to one another, I found that the more I love people in general, the less I love people in particular. The hardest part about the command, love thy neighbor, is thy neighbor. He says, at times I feel I could sacrifice for people, even give myself in crucifixion for people, until the moment anyone gets close to me, then his personality annoys me. He blows his nose too loudly. He takes too long eating. I dislike him, I hate him, but I love people in general. Isn't this the way we are? We, we have this, we cherish feelings of love for people, but the moment someone gets close to us is the moment they annoy us and irritate us, and our love quickly runs out. Well, to help us answer the question, do we love, why don't we love one another more, and what does it mean to love one another, I want, us to show, I want to show us a picture of love, as clearly as we can in the time that we have remaining, a picture of love. And to do this, I want to bring the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul together as conversation partners, and to help us gain this picture of love. And I'm going to go to the Apostle John and some verses here from 1 John 4 to supply the frame for this picture. So John's going to frame it for us, and then after a little bit, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13 to let the Apostle Paul paint the portrait for us of what the details look like. So we're going to go to John for the frame and then to Paul for the portrait itself, the frame of God's love and then the portrait of love for one another. So first of all, we want to look at this frame. What frames our love for one another? Well, what purpose does a frame serve? Well, a frame, it gives the shape of something and it supports something. It, it holds it up on the wall and it, and it defines its shape. And when we look at 1 John, we see that God's love for us and our love for others is connected in a very tight way. And I want to give you just four examples of this from different statements throughout 
uh, John's first epistle. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to these statements and you'll begin to see a connection between God's love for us and our love for others and see if you can figure out what the nature of that connection is. 1 John 4.11 is the verse that I started. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. But we also find this in verse 19 of 1 John 4. We love because He first loved us. We also see this in verse 7, let us love one another, for love is from God. In verse 16, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We also find in chapter 3 in verse 16, John writes, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay our down our lives for the brothers. What is the connection between God's love for me, God's love for you, and your love for others? Well, there's many things that we can say about this connection, but at least two things are clear. And that is that we ought to love because God loves us, and we ought to love like God loves us. In other words, God's love provides both the power and the pattern for our love for other people. We love in the way that God loves, and we love, and we're enabled to love because God's love. So God's love provides the pattern and the power for our love for others. We'll take those one at a time. We'll see, first of all, that God's love provides the pattern for our love for others. <clears throat> in other words, love, as presented in the Bible, is not just this empty concept, like a, like a loose duffel bag, that we could just stuff whatever shapes we want into it. Love in the Bible has a very specific shape. That's not true uh, of love in our culture. In our culture today, we take this idea of love as a label that we can stitch onto a variety of things and, and say, well, that's love, and that's love, and that's love, when biblically speaking, that's not love. It is God's love for us that tells us what love really is like. The situation that we have in our culture today reminds me of a time when I was in a crowded market in a foreign country where they would sell so-called uh, American name brand clothing. What it really was was just cheap clothes that they stitched American name brands onto. And they'd sell these at top for, for high prices because people thought they were getting the real deal. And I remember in being in the store one time and overhearing a customer come in and say, and say, do you have any Nike products? And the guy said, well, of course I do. Here's, and there's pants and shirts and hats. And here's Ni this is a Nike product. This is a Nike product. This is a Nike product. And the customer says, these are all really Nike. He said, of course, I make them myself. <laughs> and what he would do is just take cheap clothes and he'd, he'd, he'd stitch the Nike label on them. In our culture right now, we do the same thing with love. We say, here's love, it's a, it's a cheap thrill. Here's love, it's some, someone looking at me and saying, I like you. Here's love, it's, it's a one-night stand. Here's love, it's I give 50%, you give 50%. Together, it's 100%. We, we meet each other in the middle. We say, here is love, here is love. Well, what we're doing is we're stitching the label love onto all kinds of counterfeit things that unravel as soon as we take them home. What is the true pattern for love? We find it in the scripture. Here is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His only Son for us. There's the pattern for love. Here is love. By this we know love, John writes in chapter 3, verse 16, that He laid down His life for us. What is the pattern of love? 
that we see in Scripture. It's not, I'll go 50% if you go 50%. It's not a cheap thrill. It's not a rush of adrenaline. It's not something that lasts a week or a month or even a lifetime. Love is an eternal thing. Love is, from God's perspective, biblically speaking, love is a selfless, it's a giving of oneself for the benefit of another that is fueled not by that person's credits or or demerits, but is fueled by the eternal loving nature of God himself. That is the pattern of our love. We find the pattern of love in God's self-giving nature. Here is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. So how does, the question that we're asking is, how does John here frame our love for others? He frames it by giving us the pattern of it. And that is, our love for others ought to be like God's love for us, which is a giving of oneself for others. Now, you ask, how in the world can anybody do that? Because that is unlike anything that we experience. And that leads us to the second way in which John frames God's love for us. Remember, when we were looking at the connection between these statements about God's love for us and, and, and our love for others, we said God's love for us not only provides the pattern of our love for others, it also provides the power. We love him because he first loved us. And this is very evident when we look at all throughout Scripture, but particularly in John's letters when he says, God first loved us, and from that love that God has for us flows our love for other people. The connection between God's love for us and our love for others is very much like the connection between a, a trunk of a tree and the branches growing from that trunk. Right? The branches don't hold themselves up they're upheld because they're in the brand, in the trunk. And, and what's going on is there's sap flowing through the trunk into the branches that it's allowing, to, allowing it to bear fruit, the fruit of love. In fact, this is precisely the picture that Jesus uses in John 15. He says, I'm the vine that speaks to his followers and you're the branches. Unless you abide in me, unless you have a vital connection to me, you can't bear fruit. In fact, you can't do anything. But if you abide in me, Jesus says, that, then the sap, as it were, that flows from me will flow into you and allow from your life there to be the fruit of love. You see, we, we are not to be dismembered branches just lying on the ground, dry, brittle, and fruitless, but welded, as it were, into Jesus, the trunk through which flows the life-giving sap so that we can bear the fruit of love. We love because He first loved us. It is God's love that not only gives us the pattern of our love, what we're, how we are supposed to love, what our love should be like, but also the power for our love. So we go to John for this, this frame of our love for others. But now that we've looked at the, how our love is framed, how it's held up, how this portrait of love is held up by the love of God and what it should be like, that is a selfless giving that is motivated and fueled not by the merits or demerits of the person, but by God's eternally loving person, we want to zoom a little closer in and see what this portrait actually is. So what does love look like? For this, 
let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, okay? So take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and if you are using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 959. Now, as you turn there, it's helpful to know that this chapter stands as a, uh, a stepping stone, as it were, in Paul's train of thought. He's actually trying to get his readers, the Corinthian church, to move from being self-serving to being other-serving. And this chapter, while many people view it often as a standalone ode to love, this chapter is actually a, a key point in Paul's arguing with his readers to help them to get, to get them to use their gifts, not to puff themselves up, but to build others up. So 1 Corinthians 13, is a, it's in the flow of thought. That's why in verse, the last verse of chapter 12, verse 31, he says, I will show you a more excellent way. More excellent than what? Well, what they had been doing is, when they would come and gather with one another, just like we are for church, they would, they would come flaunting their spiritual gifts, their, their, their unique giftedness. It was almost as if for them, church had become a fashion runway in which they would, they would don the outfits of their spiritual gifts to get the oohs and ahs and turn the heads of everybody else in church. And Paul is saying, instead of, instead of drawing attention to yourself and trying to, trying to pump yourself up and get everybody to look at you, instead use your gifts to serve others. Because what was going on is, by getting attention for themselves, they were actually excluding other people and, and demeaning other people. Paul's saying, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Let everything you do be regulated by love. And that's why he begins this incredible and memorable description of love. And we see in the first few verses, Paul gives us the importance of love and then the qualities of love. We see the importance of love in verses 1 through 3. He says, he, he takes these three groups of giftedness, gifts of speaking, gifts of serving, and gifts of sacrifice. And he says, let's subtract love from these and see what we get. All right, let's see what we get if we subtract love from these incredible gifts of speech. Let's see what we get. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, here's what I am, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I think I'm so eloquent. I think I could move people with my words. I think I could be a Winston Churchill. I, could, I think I could be someone who is a great orator. You know what you really are if you take love away? You're just noise. What about gifts of service? Let's take love away from that and see what we have. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, if I would start orphanages all around the world, if I had the faith to pray and actually a mountain move from one location to the other, such, such gifts of service. Now subtract love and what do you have? I'm nothing. It gets even more intense, even more radical. This third group of gifts, gifts of sacrifice, where he says, take the most sacrificial thing you could think of. Sell your home. Take all the money that you get from that and give it to all the homeless people in Concord. 
Give them a place to live. Feed them. Give everything you have away. No, go beyond that. Get burned at the stake for your faith. Well, certainly I'd be something then. Certainly I've gained something then. Paul says this, take away love and you've gained nothing. You see how he highlights the importance of love. He's saying, you Corinthians have so wrongly inflated spiritual gifts. You think that you can have gifts of speaking and of faith and sacrifice and not have love and it's going to count for anything? Here's the principle. Anything minus love equals nothing. Taking away love is like multiplying something by zero. What's one times zero? What's well, zero? Well, surely I'd get something more if I multiplied 100 times zero. What's 100 times zero? It's still zero. What's a billion times zero? It's still zero. What's all the gifts and all the accomplishments you can ever have minus love? It's zero. Wow. Love must be really important. What is this thing called love that's so important? Well, Paul goes on from the importance of love to speak of the qualities of love. Now, my friends, when I proceed from the importance of love to the qualities of love, I always feel somewhat surprised by the first thing. Because, you know, these gifts of speech and these gifts of service and these gifts of sacrifice, they all, they're impressive. But love is patient. Not everybody can stand up and speak. Not everybody can give away all their wealth. Not everybody's going to be burned at the stake, but anybody can be patient. It doesn't require a pulpit or a corner office or a position in the organizational chart. Anybody can be patient. You can be patient in the kitchen. You can be patient in the office cubicle. You can be patient in the, in the basement office. You can be patient on the work site. Anybody can do this. It's not limited to a, to a position or to a location or to a particular personality or to a set of gifts. No, this, these qualities are for anybody. And in listing these qualities, Paul talks first of all about things that love is active in, then things that are absent from love, and then again to things that love is active in. So we'll start out with the things that love is active in, and there are these two. Love is patient and kind. What is patience? Patience is putting someone else's timetable ahead of mine. I have a hard time with that, do you? And what is kindness? Let me be clear, my friends. Kindness is not just niceness. Kindness is doing what is, what is really useful for a person. It's not just being a doormat. It's not just having no opinion. Kindness, and, and in fact, all of these qualities move toward a person. They are initiating qualities. They are qualities in which I give of myself for the benefit, for the real useful benefit of another person. That is kindness, not just niceness, it's kindness. What will benefit that person? Whatever it is, that's what love will do. Those are the active qualities of love listed here. But beyond that, Paul lists the negative qualities of love. Here are things that love never, never does. 
And here is where I believe the people in the Corinthian church really begin to squirm in their pews. Because when Paul lists what love doesn't do, no doubt he was talking about things that they were doing. Positively, love is patient and kind. Negatively, love does not envy or boast. To envy is to be discontent because someone else has something I don't. To boast is to be happy because I have something someone else doesn't. Love doesn't do these things because love is not fixated upon me and what I want, but upon the other person and what he or she needs. That's why love doesn't envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Now, this pairing, again, has this in common. Someone who is just thinking about themselves is inevitably going to disregard social norms and and just kind of blunder through things and trample on people. Why? Because they're thinking about themselves. They're rude. It does not insist on its own way. That doesn't mean that love has no opinion. It simply means that a loving person isn't disregarding the ideas of people just because they're not their own ideas and trying to barrel their way through something. It's not a loving person doesn't say, well, it's my way or the highway. That's not what love does. It is not irritable or resentful. The word that's translated resentful, the words that are translated resentful in the English Standard Version, I like much better the rendering uh, that puts it something like this. It does not keep a record of wrongs because that's the literal meaning behind this. In other words, it's not taking inventory when, when someone hurts you. Okay, as soon as I say I get an injury from someone, as soon as someone gives me a sarcastic word or insults me in some way, I go to my ledger and I write it down. I'm going to use this. It's going to come back. It doesn't mean that you won't remember anything that was done to you. It simply means that you're not hoarding them up as a kind of arsenal, promising yourself that you're going to lob those bombs right back at them given the proper opportunity. Love doesn't do that. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It's not happy when people fall or fail. It rejoices when the truth is told. And then Paul goes back to positive qualities of love by saying this, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I asked you at the beginning, are you a loving person? The question might be put this way, is this a portrait of you or me? Who is this a portrait of? Not me. And not you. Throughout the centuries, as people have studied this passage, they've realized this could not be describing perfectly any human on on this earth except one. Search high and low. Search near and far go into history backward and forward and who was always patient and kind who was never arrogant or rude never envied or boasted who never insisted on his own way 
who never rejoiced at wrongdoing, but rejoiced with the truth, who bore all things, believed all things, hoped all things, endured all things. When you look at this description of love, we have to see this is a portrait of my Lord Jesus. Here is Jesus, the one who is described here. This is the Jesus who hung upon a cross in love. This is the Jesus who is the frame of our love, who defines our love, who enables our love, who shows the pattern of our love. This is, this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. When we look at this portrait of love, framed by this pattern of love and empowered by love, we're looking at a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And your love for others will grow only insofar as you know that you are loved by this one. You will never find more love by looking within, but only by looking outside of yourself to the cross of Jesus Christ where his love was poured out for you. That's where we see love. I asked you the question at the beginning, why is your love not greater than it could be? In John's first epistle, a little further on, I invite you to go back there, 1 John chapter 4, John gives us an important insight into the answer to this question. Why our love isn't greater than it could be, than it should be? He says in verse 17, this is 1 John 4, 17, he says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. There may be a variety of reasons why your love is not greater than it should be. But one reason undoubtedly that it is, is because of fear. Have you ever been afraid as someone's gotten closer to you and begun to love you? What if they find out something about me that they are absolutely disgusted by and they stop loving me? Someone said that what people need most is love but because we are afraid, we tend to settle for casual connection instead of love because the closer we get to each other, the closer someone gets to us, the more we're, we're certain they're gonna find something about me, something in my past, something in my present, some habit I have, the way I look, the way I act, something, something about me that they'll look at and be like, that is ugly, I cannot, I can't love that. My friends, we all have something like that in our lives, don't you? If, if, if she knew this about me, if he knew this about me, they would never, ever love me. That is fear. And another fear we have when it comes to loving people is, what, what if I just, what if I, I dip down into the well of my love and it comes up empty and I just don't have enough? But when we see the cross, we see someone that is Jesus who knows everything there is to know about you and still loves you. 
He knows what you've done. He knows what you've said. He knows how you treated that person. He knows what you did at work. He knows what you did in private. He knows everything about you, and still He loves you. And it is that perfect love that casts out fear. It is a fear-demolishing love that says, even though I am sinful, and even though I am flawed, and even though I can't imagine anyone lower than I am, love reached down and lifted me. That is fear excluding love. And because, and if you know a love like that, and you can only know it by gazing upon the cross of Christ, then you will know that whenever you dip down into the well of your love for other people, it will be bottomless because you're not dipping down into your own love, but into the love of another who loved you and gave himself for you. That's how we can love one another. My friend, there is no other way. You are not loving enough you are not nice enough. I am not loving enough and nice enough. There is only one person whose love can motivate and, and be the pattern for my love, and that is the love of Jesus Christ for me and for you. Yes, my friend, you can have that kind of love. And you can have it by gazing upon the cross of Christ in faith that that love is for you. I mentioned this in our All Things Trinity newsletter, a story about D.L. Moody, a fellow New Englander. He was born in Massachusetts. Don't hold that against him. He was a great preacher of the gospel. And up until a certain point in his ministry, he, would, he, would, he said he would rarely preach about the love of God until he went to a, a week of meetings in which a preacher preached on John 3.16, seven nights in a row, and he didn't like it. He went home one night and his wife asked him, as the story goes, what, what did the preacher say? The preacher said, God loves sinners. And then as he heard more and more of that preaching, his heart began to melt. And he realized that he would make the love of God for sinners the theme of his preaching for the rest of his life. It's not that we emphasize God's love too much. It's that we emphasize it too little. Because only as you know the love of God will you be able to properly understand anything else about God. Even God's wrath against sin makes little sense unless you know His love for righteousness and for those upon whom He wishes to bestow His favor. You can never get enough of the love of God, my friends. It's a boundless ocean with no bottom or shore. Do you know that kind of love? And if you do, what should we do? This is where it gets really practical. It starts with the people right around you. I can see them. They're sitting next to you. They're on your pew. They're in your home. What, what does this look like for you on a number of levels? First of all, for you personally. I believe that for you personally, this teaching that you're, you can love only insofar as you know God's love for you means you can never do too much to meditate upon God's love for you. Read the Psalms. Read Ephesians 3. Get on your knees and meditate over that passage and be overwhelmed by God's boundless love for you. But what does this look like on a family level? There are husbands and wives in here. Is your love for each other this kind of self-giving love that works for the benefit of your spouse? 
Is there something that you need to confess to your spouse and apologize to him or her for? Because that's the loving way to do. Or have you withdrawn from your husband or wife? Retreated into your own shell? Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. I long and pray that the marriages in our church be strong marriages which selfishness and resentment is cast out, which husbands love their wives and sacrifice for them instead of take from them, and wives do the same for their husbands. Does your marriage need an overhaul? Fix, a, fix your gaze upon the love of Christ. Dip deep into that well and pour it out upon one another. What about parents and children? Parents, are you showing your love for your kids? Not just by letting them have whatever they want, but by doing good for them. You see, love doesn't always look like agreeing with the person. Love always does what is right for the other person. Children to your parents. Siblings to one another. How do you show love at work? And what about on a level of a, a church level? What about those of us who have covenanted with one another to walk together as we've this, this covenant that we've been studying in love? For one thing, how can we show each other's love for each other if we're not present with one another? If we're not here to encourage one another, to provoke one another to what? To love and to good works. The love of believers for one another is proven and shown in many ways, not the least of which in simply being at the dinner table, so to speak, when the church gathers and not letting anything get in the way of that, but not just being present, being open with one another, being truthful with one another. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, excuse me, 4, speaking the truth in love. That's, that does not simply mean saying things that happen to be true in a nice way. No, here's what it means. It means speaking the truth, specifically the truth about Jesus and what he has done for that person and, and leveraging it toward a loving purpose. Well, what does that mean? It means taking who a person is in Jesus, that is their identity as being loved and embraced by Christ and saying, you belong to Jesus, so be encouraged. Or you belong to Jesus, so you ought not to be meddling in this sin. Or you belong to Jesus, so you need to love your wife. Or you are a child of God, so you must be loving your husband. That's what it means to speak the truth in love. It means that we're being willing to be honest with one another. Let's not let this place be a place in which we just simply exchange smiles and shallow pleasantries, but a place in which we're willing to say the hard things to one another, ask the uncomfortable questions, ask the questions that you're afraid that someone might actually give a real honest answer because it means that you're going to have to apply some good old gospel truth to their situation. That's what a church ought to be. Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples if you have what for one another? Love. Tolerance for one another? Being okay with one another? No. Difficult. Love. Committed love. And we can have this kind of love as we put the cross at the center of our lives and of our church. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we ought also to love one another.